Now, with that said, I want to jump into our, uh, our teaching today. And this morning, I kind of called a little bit of a variable today, or an audible. This morning, we're going to spend some, some time, one more week, talking about God's gospel shoes of peace. And there's a reason for this. So uh, every, every Monday, uh, we have like a sort of a staff decompression where we don't physically meet because, you know, lots of us have other jobs and are working bivocationally. But we have sort of an email thread that develops that talks about what goes on here, some of the challenges and difficulties we had even before being here. Keep in mind, some of you showed up here around 10, but our setup teams get here around 7 to be able to make all this happen. So it's sort of a diagnostic tool that we use to be able to identify key challenges, critical issues, to celebrate what we feel like was working really well and to learn from the things that we feel like we need to develop. And so a few weeks ago after one of my teachings, the first teaching on God's gospel of peace, which comes from Ephesians 6, Abe, our worship leader, who's resting today, he's actually worshiping and not leading worship, he had sent me an email about Romans 10, the second verse that was read this morning, verses 14 through 15, because it was a a pretty amazing verse that tied into uh, not just receiving these amazing blessings that we we have from Christ in the gospel, but it, it highlights the significant importance we have in actually being a people who who recognize the gospel is for us, but not just for us. It's that burden of communal mission. And so after reading that email and just some of the dialogue around it, I really thought it was important that we we take a few moments today. I added one teaching uh, to be able to discuss this idea of what it means to be the feet of the good news of the gospel. So before we get into that, I want to point out two things. So if you really dig this teaching this morning, text me afterwards and let me know. If you do not care for it, then text Abe and let him know because it's entirely his fault. And some of you are wondering, like, how do I get in touch with him? Find me afterwards. I'll give you his cell phone number. You blow his phone up all week long, okay? That's my promise to you. So seriously, a very, very key idea. And just so we have a bit of a summary here, uh, the first week uh, of this teaching, which is in the bigger part of God's gospel uh, of peace, which is a a microcosm of the armor of God, all these important attributes, tools, spiritual gifts that God gives us to be able to conduct ourselves well in this world, to honor Jesus and to serve him well. We sort of split this, this element of God's armor, the shoes of peace, the gospel shoes of peace. And the reason that metaphor is used is because shoes provide us the ability to move around. They give us the ability to be nimble, to be defensive when necessary, to react. Without shoes, life would be far more difficult. And this glorious idea of God's gospel is actually rooted in this idea of of our feet being fitted with this beautiful and amazing news. And so the first week, we discussed the theological reality of this truth. We talked a good amount about what, meant by, what Paul meant by the, these shoes and how it was tied into the gospel. It was a theological treatise, if you will, on this idea. The second week, last week, we talked about the spiritual, physical, and emotional implications of God's gospel of peace. Primarily that the gospel of peace should bring about joy and peace in our hearts. Not necessarily in a perfect way. That doesn't mean that once we find Christ or grow in him that life is perfect and easy. But it simply means we have been given the ability to endure and to flourish when life is both wonderful and difficult. This week we're going to talk about, not that these other messages have not been entirely practical, but I want to get into a very strong application. Because the very nature of this piece of armor has given us all a great opportunity to self-assess, like we said last week, whether or not we've left this amazing set of tools that God has given us, disassembled, sort of sitting in a spiritual box, or if we're actually trying to wrestle with the reality of what it means to, to fit our lives with each individual piece. The belt buckle of truth, objective truth, the reality of having God's righteousness in our life, the breastplate of righteousness, and then this idea we're talking about, God's gospel of peace, these shoes. 
And so over these past weeks, we've spent our time defining what the gospel of peace actually is. Very quickly, it is the good news Jesus brought to the world to deal with the problem of sin. And that when we fit our feet with it, we're given two, just according to this passage, two major uh, applications we can take home with us. The first is that we're given the ability to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy and the trials of the world. So this is a really interesting teaching because it's one of the most applicable of all of them. And last week we spent the whole morning talking about some of these amazing promises connected to fitting our lives with God's gospel shoes of peace. Today I want to add a layer of responsibility to those amazing blessings. And this is true no matter what it is that we read in the scripture. Whenever there is something that we read about us, when we read about a way that God cares for us or loves us or supports us or is behind us or encourages us or challenges us, whatever it is, that Jesus does in our lives, when we make that decision, when we decide that we both, you know, physical, spiritually, and emotionally, we want to follow him, those attributes, those blessings, those things that God gives us are not solely meant for us. And I want to explain what I mean by this. In the Bible, you'll find that there's an inseparable connection that God makes when it comes to how he loves us and how we love other people. You can apply this to anything that God does with us. There is always an application for how we show that same characteristic, that same trait, certainly in imperfect ways. But nonetheless, we are trying, we're striving to be love in the world in the way that Jesus is love for us. We are trying to be justice and righteousness in the world in the way that Jesus was just and right for us. So for example, one of the most obvious ways is once you truly know God deeply loves and cares for you, it should rather naturally, I'm not saying that this isn't a process of sanctification and that we don't have to spend our days thinking about these ideas, processing them, praying over these truths, asking for strength in the areas of our life where we are without them. But the bottom line is, is when you begin to believe that God loves you and cares for you, over time, it should rather naturally create a newfound compassion for people and a desire to care for others in a similar way. Otherwise, there's a bit of a a spiritual hypocrisy connected to these ideas. To be able to receive love from Jesus but not show it is a problematic reality in the Christian faith. And it's completely fair to say, no matter what example we use, in this case, love, it's completely fair to say that the level of understanding we have about how God loves us, how deeply we have understood that with our head, our heart, and our hands, it can be validated in large part by the way we actually love other people. It's truly an external gauge that reveals an internal attitude of our heart. Simply put, the way you love people in your life is often a direct reflection of how you understand Christ's love in your own life. Let me give you some other examples here. If you freely receive grace, but refuse to show it to others, it could indicate, and likely does, that there's a deep misunderstanding about grace. Or if you've received forgiveness of sin because of Christ's sacrificial generosity on the cross, but you refuse to forgive others and and be generous in your life, these attributes we see on the cross, it can indicate that there's a, 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 a disconnect between how we understand who God is for us and what he's done for us, and how we, for example, in this case, live sacrificially and generously for the sake of other people when those opportunities are provided to us. And so in light of that, this morning, I want to spend our time talking about a very very applicable way that we can proclaim this amazing gospel of peace God has given us in Jesus, because we've spent a lot of time talking about the benefits it has for us, which is important. We have to experience this before we can know how to share it deeply anyways. And remember, in Paul's armor of, of God analogy, we're commanded to fit our feet with the gospel of peace so that we can be ready to deal with the schemes of the enemy and the trials of life. It's a a key understanding of our life and faith, this gospel of peace. 
In the book of Romans, Paul tells us we are also supposed to use our feet to carry this gospel into the natural spheres of influence God has given us. Paul wrote both of these books, Ephesians and Romans. And so in Ephesians, he's, he's laying out this wonderful reality of how, how this benefits us and blesses us. In Romans, as he's talking about the nation of Israel, and the, obviously there's an application to us in the world that we live in, he's talking about how this beautiful gospel we read about, the way God has inter sort of injected himself into the world, the Old and the New Testament, how he's interacted with us. He's, he's telling us that this beautiful truth, God seeks out people so that we can be in, in, a, in a profound and deep relationship with him. He's saying this is not just something that we, we should read about and apply just in our own lives. We should actually be the type of people who are, are so thankful for this that we have a, a sensible and a respectful desire to bring this up with other people when the opportunity presents itself. And so in order to get a bearing on how to apply this in our lives, we're going to revisit a teaching that I shared with this room about two years ago, actually, called the BLESS tool. So let's jump right in and look at the only truth we're going to examine this morning. Based on everything we've discussed and the significance of the gospel, those who fit their lives with God's gospel of peace should have a growing desire to bring it to others. And I, I want to make one general statement here before we move into this. When we talk about some, some practical ways... Some, some disciplined ways, we might even say, that we can be intentional in our world, that we can be mindful of what is going on around us so that we can actually be the light and life of Christ when those opportunities present themselves. When we talk about proclaiming or sharing the gospel, whatever terminology you want to use, I want us to know that many of us might have an instant thought in our head, like a restricted imagination as to what this means. We might think that when Paul speaks of sharing the gospel or bringing the gospel of God's you know, greatness and all that he's done with us to the world with our feet, that it, it sort of looks like what I do in a room like this each week. We sort of have these ideas of maybe some of the folks you've seen on television, some great and many not so great. Maybe you think of somebody in your life who was naturally gifted with evangelism with this idea of being able to just naturally talk to people about Christ when the opportunities present themselves. They can engage deep theological issues and cultural issues and philosophical issues. All of those things are good, and we should desire to grow in our understanding of those things. But I don't want you to conflate this idea of having a gift of evangelism, simply meaning that God has given certain people a unique ability, like a, a heightened sense, you might say, to be able to engage in this, like an Apostle Paul. There's a reason this guy started like a gazillion churches in the, in the, the New Testament, because he was wired this way. I don't want you thinking that the, the measure of success here is a guy like Paul. For some of you, that will be the case. But for others, the way this looks in your life will be almost entirely defined by the way God has wired and gifted you. So some of you who are maybe more inclined to, to the gift of mercy, you will communicate truth in a way that might be very different than somebody who is wired with the gift of teaching. Or maybe you're a person who is strong in the area of administration and leadership. The way that that actually looks in your life, the proclamation of the gospel, is going to look very different than, than somebody who maybe is wired with the gift of hospitality. The way the person with the gift of hospitality shares the gospel is often by opening their home and inviting people into their home and they desire to be around people. That form, whatever the form is, they are equally valid. So don't begin this teaching by thinking, I'm never going to stand in front of a room of people or I'm never going to be the type of person who just like, you know, jumps up on the cubicle and work and proclaims faith about Jesus. You should never do that, even if you have the gift of, of teaching and evangelism. That's not what this means. There can often be a subtle but profound way God uses us. And the unique ways he's created us, it's actually critical for us to be able to accomplish the mission in the world. 
because not everybody is wired the same way. And so the real logic heads, those folks are going to want more direct analysis. They're going to want to, you know, parse data and facts. And we have to have people in the kingdom that can address those issues. But we also have to have people who, who are maybe more emotive in the way they understand things. They're more sense, sensory or intuitive. All of the ways we have been wired, God wants to apply these truths, these realities, through those, those areas of our lives. So it's a very broad palette. Have an unrestricted imagination when we talk about the proclamation of the gospel this morning. And I want to reread to you Romans 10, 14 through 15. This is the main idea we're discussing. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, remember, the feet of the gospel, right? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring news. What an interesting connection. Now, at Restoration, we use a tool called BLESS to equip people with a practical way to proclaim the gospel. And this is, this is a, a roadmap, you might say. It does not answer every question this morning. So I don't want you to think in the roughly 35-ish minutes that I'll talk to you this morning that this is the beginning and the end of this dialogue. I, I want you to sort of feel very deeply and to know that this is the beginning of a dialogue. We will start it today, and I certainly want you to know that a lot of people at this church are available to follow up with you. If you have questions about particular things we're saying or particular applications in your life, don't see this as the end of a teaching this morning. See it as the beginning of a good starting point to, to think about whether or not we actually believe what Paul says in Ephesians and Romans about the role the good news of Christ is supposed to play in our lives. And so before we proceed, I want to issue a challenge to everyone sitting in this room. If you've been with us sometime, if you happen to be in this room two, over two years ago when I taught about this, um, that's likely probably for some of you and, and not likely for a great amount of you. Before you check out, don't check out thinking you've heard this. Uh, really use this time to evaluate and honestly ask yourself if you're living this rhythm out in your life. It's important that we revisit critical things like this so that we, we can identify whether or not we, we are taking them serious. And secondly, if you've never heard this before, all I want to ask you to do is to commit to praying about and living out this rhythm we're going to talk about. I'm not trying to hard sell you on anything this morning. I'm just trying to say this is a critical rhythm that should be present in our life. And it's really worth asking God where you stand with it one way or the other and being encouraged in the fact that no matter where you stand, God on his throne and these people in this body are here to support you and encourage you in this venture. And it's really important to Jesus and to those of us trying to follow Jesus that we actually get this. Whenever I talk about the, the furtherance of God's kingdom through word and deed, remember 2,000 years ago, before there even was a thing called the church like we understand it today, Jesus predicted and promised that he would make nation, disciples of the nations through his followers. Small group of people, many, many, 2,000 years ago. And he also promised that the, the future health and growth of this, this group of people who proclaimed Jesus as Lord, it was going to concretely be connected to us genuinely experiencing and compassionately proclaiming that same truth they discussed in the upper room 2,000 years ago with Christ. That is a significant tenet of the Christian faith. And so the bottom line in all of this is this. Jesus comes to earth in large part to help other people experience this magnificent love and grace of his heavenly Father. Through word and deed, he is constantly helping people to understand who God is and what his desire for our lives is. And so as believers, we should be compelled to lead with the same kind of love in our lives. And the tool I want to give you as you walk out of this place, you'll find it in your, in your cup holders, okay? Uh, to the left and the right of you, there should be a connection card packet, which has some of the information that I mentioned on the front of this. If you have you know, questions about life or faith or need to be prayed for, you can let us know that on those cards. But connected to that, you'll find a little bookmark-type tool. 
And I want you to keep this in your hand and take it home with you. There are some out on the table. If by chance there isn't one by you, you can grab them. Because I, I want you to know that this is not, again, the end of a conversation. It's the beginning of what is preferably a lifestyle. And so in your, in your seats, we've placed these tools. And this card actually reminds us of two things. One, it sort of helps us to refresh what we're going to talk about. And on the back side of it, you'll notice that there are some blank spaces, which give you an opportunity to write down the names or the faces or the things that God burdens your heart as you try to be more, more proactive and intentional to be his light and life in the world. It's the kind of thing you can stick in your pocket. Maybe you have a great memory. You don't need the card. But the idea is that this is a tool so that you don't think we talk about this, go home, and move on. Hopefully we talk about this and we wrestle with this for the rest of our days following Jesus. Whatever God puts on your heart in these moments, the weeks, months, years to follow, something like this is a great tool to help you process that. And this command to bless, you know, we might think, especially for those of us 2,000 years on the other side of New Testament history, we might think that these types of teachings, the, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, or the places where Paul is telling us in Romans to, to really consider what it means to be the light and life of Christ in the world, we might think that these are new ideas that just began in the New Testament, but they are in no way new ideas. I said a few moments ago that there's a congruency between the Old Testament and the New Testament in God's desire for what his people were to do in the world. This idea of, of blessing others begins in Genesis 12. And as we look at it, I, I want to be clear about this idea of, of blessing. God tells Abram, and then Abram, through the, through, it, he becomes the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel's primary responsibility is to actually be a people who bless the world around them. So wherever you see the covenant people of God, Old Testament or New, this is, an, this is at the epicenter of who we are, how we understand our love for God and his love for us and how we share that with others. And so this roadmap is just that. I want to reiterate, it's not going to give you uh, maybe every particular detail about how to apply this in your life, but there are places to go if you have questions about that. The specifics of this are, are important to know that we, we want you to have an idea in your head about how you move out of this place and, and bless people, but we also want you to know that you have to ask and really be dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit because when you leave this place and you don't hear my voice anymore or you're in an environment where you're not around other men and women who love Christ, it's important that you know you're not alone, that the power of God's Holy Spirit is in us and he desires to work through us. He is our advocate, as we've taught on here before. He is the one who reminds our hearts of God's truth when we forget it. He encourages our souls when we forget who we are in Jesus. He is truly the power that exists in us until the return of Christ. I want you to hear that. And I also want you to hear this, because it's very important that you hear what I'm about to say. While the majority of what I'm going to teach on today is original, even the way I'm explaining it, I want you to know this actual acronym is not mine. It was taken from a pastor named Dave Ferguson in Chicago. So I don't want you thinking I'm plagiarizing the idea. The content of this is pretty unique, but that acronym is not mine. Now, with that said, let's walk into what we're going to talk about here, these five waypoints. If you want to be intentional in understanding your role in the world, if you would really like to be more... Uh, just if you want to have a more profound presence in your world for Jesus, it begins by praying for God to open your eyes to the needs of the people around you. This is so important. And the older I've gotten, the more I have realized how significant prayer in the Christian faith is. Years ago, I taught a sermon on, actually several sermons on, on, t on prayer. And I explained how for a lot of people, we fall into one of two default modes when it comes to how we understand prayer. The knee or the plow. For some people, when they hear of something going on in the world or in their life or they see a need, if people are hardwired for the knee, their intuition is to go to the knee, what they do is they initially begin praying about that to see how God wants them to work. It's a very critical discipline. 
Folks who are wired with the plow, equally as important, both need to be balanced though. What happens is, this is sort of the way I'm wired, they, they hear about a need or something that's going on and they immediately roll their sleeves up and just start laboring, okay? Both of these, tr- these ideas are important because praying without laboring is a problem and laboring without praying is a problem. We're likely to labor in the wrong areas if that's the case. And if we don't pray, we might actually be disconnected from the power of God to actually sustain us through some of the most difficult realities we, we endure in life. And so prayer is critical in anything we do. In the Bible, it's undeniable that nothing happens in the kingdom of God without prayer. We even see this with Jesus. I mean, the majority of his ministry, while he's doing amazing things for God, he is praying regularly to his Father in heaven. He is constantly praying throughout his life and ministry. He prays before he selects the disciples in the upper room as he commissions them. And even before we go, he goes to the cross, he is praying to his Father in the garden. He prays all the time about the work and the mission of God. There are actually times of his life where he retreats from the daily operations of ministry and mission and working and all the other things he was doing to spend quiet, reflective time with the Father. And the real lesson for us here is if Jesus did this, if he prayed about how to, to engage in the world, if he prayed to understand from his Father his role, if he actually prayed before critical things that were in front of him, ministry and mission opportunities, loving and serving others, if he prays like this, then rather naturally we should be the type of people who pray too. We should do our best to balance the knee and the plow. And so if you desire to have or reclaim the priority of blessing people with the gospel of peace, I want you to know that true, I mean genuine commitment to this, I actually do not think we can fabricate this in our own strength. We might make commitments, but they might be fragile commitments. We might, we might get to the end of our rope here more quickly than we believe we can. What I want to say here is that if we want to do the work of the kingdom, if we want to really serve God in this way, then we should deeply ask God to burden our heart for this. The burden is already clear. What I mean by this is in Scripture, we're already given this responsibility. That's pretty obvious. I just mentioned one verse today about this. But what I'm talking about is, is for God to deepen that desire in our hearts in a way that we actually begin to live in deep and meaningful ways in light of it. So if we struggle with the truth like this, we really should ask God knowing that God desires this from us. We should ask God knowing that he wants to, like wants to pour into us the desire to live this way. It isn't that we have to wonder if God wants to ignite our hearts to care for people and serve them in the name of Jesus. That is his desire for us. If we struggle for it or with it, then we should ask him to ignite this or to help us wrestle with the things in our lives that are keeping us in this. You've really got to ask God for this to, to become a significant part of your life so that you can faithfully do it for the rest of your days. And I want to take this a step further and say we don't just want to generally ask about this as we pray. We should begin there. But we should ask in very particular ways because every one of us has a a circle of influence, a a place in the world, whether it's work or school or vacation, social hobbies, whatever it is we do, you are unique. Like biology tells us, there is nobody ever today or that will be like you. You are unique in every way, in the way that you, you are wired in this world. And so this is true in the way that you care for people and love people. It's true even in the unique relationships you have. You are in places I am not, and I am in places you are not. And so as we're in those places, we should ask God to help us see and sense where he wants us to be most engaged, the places where we can really see the most fruit, the places where we can make the most of a difference. So ask God to specifically make you aware of the needs of people he has purposely put in your life. If you are a person wired with the the wonderful gift of mercy, ask God to increase that in you. 
Ask him to show you the places where, where that mercy can do great things for the world that we live in. And as he opens your eyes, please know your commitment to love others like this will only be as strong as your love for God and passion to pray for this. This is why I open with this. I don't know that we can, we can love people to the degree that God wants us to love people if we've never fully experienced, or at least we're not growing in the experience we have with understanding God's sacrificial love for us. It is important that we not only, which is common in the Western world, unfortunately, we see teachings or truth. We often see this as simply something that is cognitive. We, we, we want intelligence. We want knowledge. Beautiful things. We're all for both of those here. But wisdom is something different than intelligence or knowledge. Wisdom is simply the idea of how to particularly imply that which we know. And what I want to say here is we might know that there's a burden or a responsibility we have to serve in our world, but wisdom actually gives us the details of how we, how we execute that in our lives. So pray significantly. Begin with prayer. And know that if you are asking God to put names or faces or places on the back of that card, he already knows those places and will share them with you. This isn't the kind of thing where he's going to hide them. Know that if you go to God with this, he's going to reveal these things to you, and he's going to show you the places you can be most effective for him. Begin with prayer. Secondly, the L in bless. You have to listen to what the people in your life are saying. Now, years ago, there's, there's a handful of professors and statements that I remember, conversations at coffee tables and all kinds of sort of environments where I was able to debate other people both in Jesus and out of Jesus about the faith and throughout this sort of life of following Christ there's a handful of statements that have really like profoundly reshaped the way I understand things. Years ago uh, when I was at seminary I had a seminary professor who used to say that one of the problems with it with a teaching like this or one of the problems with the idea of proclaiming faith in America that is has sort of crept up into the modern church we look at the history of this maybe for the past 70 or 80 years, is that Christians have been taught to do a whole lot of talking, but not much listening. If you've ever had a private conversation with me about this, you know this is what I call transactional or propositional um, evangelism. It simply means that what happens is, is we develop a preset series of questions that we think people want answered, and sometimes those questions might be right, but oftentimes we are addressing questions that people are not asking. And so if you go to somebody talking a lot with this grit in your head, you might actually entirely miss where this person is coming from. One of the greatest evidences of this, if you've done any type of study of church history in America over the past hundred years anyways, is about 20 years ago, if you were in a big mainline church, they would have taught you something like this by saying, the main question our culture is asking is like, you know, where do I go when I die? Like, is there an afterlife? Am I going to be in a hell or a heaven? And while we are in a deeply spiritual culture, there's no question about that, Spiritual, not necessarily meaning Christian spirituality, but just spirituality in general. Some people are asking that question. But I've actually heard people respond to that question by saying things like, hell and heaven, that's nonsense. Uh, Ridiculous. So the idea of an afterlife, if you're going to approach somebody with this, and they don't even believe in that, it goes to show you how we might be misaligned. And this is largely a part of the problem of talking without listening. And I want to submit something very different to you this morning. You can certainly try to have a one-way conversation like that today. I would highly recommend that you don't because we want to be respectful and we actually want to genuinely care. On the contrary, a better way to engage people is to do so. I mean, we go right to the author of this. All you have to do is examine the life of Jesus to get a real understanding of a better way to communicate with people. In no way, key point, in no way was Jesus ever afraid to talk about God's truth and we actually see its force applied in different ways. Ironically, 
The places he is most blunt and hard with his truth is with the confused religious people in the New Testament. You know, the idea of the Pharisee. They're the ones that get the truth stick most heavily. There's a, an incredible compassion for those who, who are in disagreement or are confused or misunderstand. They're, they don't get faith or even want it. He almost has a different approach there, but there seems to be a higher level of intensity with the people who claim to understand truth but actually misrepresent it. So we see an interesting rhythm in the life of Jesus. And one of the big things is he's asking questions, and sometimes he's actually responding to questions that people don't even know how to ask. He listens to people. He engages them where they are, in large part because he genuinely cares about them. And he always speaks the truth. But he does so oftentimes with patience, with an immeasurable understanding, and with grace. In other words, he gives people this space to process. Look at the first disciples in the first chapter of John. The disciples, who aren't even disciples yet, some of them run to Jesus and they say, hey, we've heard you do great things. We would like to follow you right now. In other words, they're like, we're giving you everything. And he's like, hold up a minute. Um, Come and see. He literally says that. He slows them down and says, I think this is wonderful. I'm paraphrasing here a little bit. But before you like devote your whole life to me, you should probably have a meal with me first. You should get to know me a little bit. And so we see that even with, the, with those who are sort of invigorated to follow Jesus, he is constantly tempering that so that they can deeply understand what they're doing so that when they make these commitments, whatever they are, they actually stick in life. And so Jesus has this, this technique that I think is interesting. And it's undeniable that Jesus regularly makes time to listen to the needs and the hurts of people that he's talking to. He brings the good news of the gospel to the people God puts in his life because he A, cares for people, and he also loves God. He deeply loves God and is concerned about folks understanding how God sees them in this world. And because of this, he is able to do something unique. He is able to take this general idea of the good news and he's able to apply it in very particular ways to the hearts of the people he speaks to. In doing so, when you live like this, you gain a, a great clarity in knowing what this actually you know, practically looks like in your life. So I've shared in this room for years ago, I'm a pretty cognitive person, and when, when people began talking to me about faith in my late teens and early 20s, I had absolutely no care for the emotive realities of the faith. I'm one of those guys with like all the intellectual arguments that, that shot a lot of this stuff down. And that's where I began. And what was interesting was the people that were speaking to me, they balanced that a little bit. They actually were, they were actually bringing up ideas and thoughts I'd never even heard of before. It was interesting to see that there was another side to the way that I viewed life. But there was also this desire from them to not simply reduce Christianity to an intellectual faith, although there is definitely some deep-seated knowledge, intelligence, ideas, and wisdom in this, in this book that we study. But what I found interesting was that they, they addressed my concerns, my objections, in an incredibly relational way. I've joked that I'm an ice cream addict. I can literally live on it. And so this group of people, as I got to know them, they would constantly take me out to Dairy Queen, and I would like funnel vanilla ice cream out of that machine while they were pouring these ideas of who Jesus was into my head. You can see this in another way, maybe from the other perspective, the emotive side of things. Look at this Samaritan woman at the well. I taught on that years ago, but what a beautiful story where Jesus has this run-in with this really marginalized woman in her society. She's accepted by nobody because of her societal standing. And Jesus breaks every religious book, every rule in the book by, by speaking to this woman, first of all. He violates every first century cultural law that was in existence there. And he talks to her about where she's at. And he cuts right through all of the nonsense in her life. And he has this frank conversation with her about the fact that she has been turning to relationships. She's basically been taken advantage of 
by other people, other men in her life. And it, what's happening is that she keeps going to these folks, hoping that somebody will treat her properly. And in that moment, he begins to deconstruct what was an incredibly unhealthy understanding of, of manhood. He really begins to show a different way. And so Jesus is the master of this. He can take these beautiful truths of the gospel and apply them to the hearts of people. And you don't have to have a degree in theology to do this. You just have to have a desire to love God. You have to re read the scripture, obviously, to learn from his examples and be around men and women who can actually help you, you, who you can invest in and they can invest in you as you live this life. You don't have to be an academic or somebody who has like a, a keen insight on the, the, the psychosis or the emotions of humans. The more you understand the way Jesus works with people, the more likely you are to see that this is more attainable than we might have been led to believe in years past. So you have to listen to people. You have to learn to ask the questions that, that actually get us to the place where their hearts are. And we should expect the same in our lives with the men and women that we know that love Jesus. Begin with prayer, listen to people. And then take some time to eat. And this is a bit of a metaphor, but it's one that will impact. Take some time to eat with the people God puts in your life. Now, eating is a very important life, a, a part of the body of our church. It's uh, something I do a lot with people in our community groups. In our group, uh, when we meet, we have a weekly meal. We always start with supper and then finish with something, whether it's some teaching we're doing or a time of social gathering, whatever it is. Eating is important. And in this rhythm, th this sort of social space I want to talk about right now, this is probably, you know, I, when I was sort of writing this, I, I listened, this is one of the hardest steps here, but it might actually be the hardest step in what we're talking about today to accomplish because it requires us to do something that is completely antithetical to the modern Western world we live in. To be able to engage people in meaningful ways, we have to apply this, just two words I wanna say, two very simple words, slow down. But the ability to actually slow down in life is often impossible, whether that is because of the external pressures in life or because we've sort of hook, line, and sinker bought in to the rapid understanding of the world that we live in. I'm not saying I'm against speed. I'm just saying that we live in a world now that is constantly hurrying to nowhere in a lot of places. So what happens here is to slow down and make personal time for people, which is almost an entirely countercultural practice. In our hyper-busy, social media-driven society, most of us today, when we look at all this stuff going on in our lives, we rightly believe that our time is at a premium, and we should, because Paul also writes in the book of Ephesians that we should be very mindful of the minutes we have in life, because there's not an unlimited amount of them. So we should really think about what it is we do with our time, and we should be mindful of whether or not we are using some of our time to actually engage people, whatever way we can. Now, I wish there was an easy fix for this step, but there isn't, because if you're going to spend time with somebody, if you're going to invest in somebody's life, if you're going to be humble enough to be invested in the essence of discipleship, that's going to take a little time. And I don't mean that you have to be, you know, in a church building Wednesday from 4 to 10 p.m. We don't own a church building. We don't do anything on Wednesday nights. There's nothing wrong with that philosophy. But what I'm saying is, is we have to have some space for it somewhere. And these ideas don't necessarily mean that we have to find 20 extra hours in our week. It just means that we might actually need to, A, evaluate what we're doing with our time, and then B, wonder if we can be a little more intentional in the time we are using. Some people, though, are just not going to be willing to make a sacrifice in this area. Because this type of, of, of love, this type of caring for people, this type of engaging with people will not be important to them. Maybe it's the stage of life, or maybe they're just a little more utilitarian in the way they understand people. But I'm telling you, as, as believers, 
we would lament if, if the scripture sang of the praises of God treating us like a utility, if we were a function in his life. That's not how the Bible speaks about us. The Bible speaks about God being a God of, of patience and long-suffering and pursuit. The Bible talks about God being a God who, who laments when we suffer, who is with us when we suffer, who encourages us in our times of grief, who challenges us to become better people and to grow in the grace of Jesus. He is not the kind of God that simply spins our lives and see how, to, to see how the top works out once it sort of falls down and wobbles off of the table. God is deeply invested in our lives. And all I'm asking for is that we consider what it means to, to be invested in somebody else's life like this. Because I promise you, if you do not make time for people who are hurting or suffering, folks who are far from God, if you don't desire to pass your faith on to your family, your children, or to have it passed on to you, to, to be encouraged and challenged by men and women who are further down the road of us in faith, whether that's having them over for supper or going to supper, meeting them at a restaurant, grabbing a cup of coffee, whatever it is that looks like, you will never be able to serve people if you don't spend time with people. The logical reality of that is concrete. And in Jesus' life, we can also see this rhythm. He regularly eats with people. He, he spends time with the faithful, the disciples. He gets in a ton of trouble for being around the sinners, the people far from God. He engages the tax collectors you know, arguably the greatest scourge of the first century world by cultural standards. I mean, the way Jesus, think about this, the way Jesus tells us to remember him is what? What do we do in remembrance of him? It's the Lord's Supper, right? The very way we are told to remember Jesus roots itself in this intimate time that he and his followers had just before he went to the cross and died for the sins of the world. It is important that we know sharing meals is not just a new thing. Um, it's actually a very, it's a deeply human thing, first of all. It's one of the things that binds all of humanity. One of the things I have loved most about traveling the world is sitting down and eating other foods. I mean, I love, I'll eat anything. I really have no prohibitions when it comes to that. But what's amazing is I've been to other places where we were not even speaking the same language. I've been to some places where it's taken two people to translate through languages because of dialect and local language. But you can sit at a table and almost sort of know what's happening when you're eating next to somebody. It, it levels the playing field of human relationship. And all I'm saying is that it's real important that we know real friendships that, that, that really flourish in Jesus require us to be engaged in friendship. And so it might be really worth praying about taking some time to slow down and to serve others. It's an integral step in learning to love others. Rather quickly here, and then we'll wrap up, I want to say two last things. If you're beginning with prayer, listening, eating, serving and sharing, really where I want to wrap up. Serve those same people you're spending time with when God gives you the chance to do so. The, the, the logical step of progression here is that the more time you spend with people, the more likely you ought to know how you can serve them and how you can be served by them. And we know this because this is what Jesus does. Mark 10.10 actually tells us Jesus comes to serve people, not to be served. His, his primary part in this world was to serve people. And as God makes those needs clear to you, you should just meet them. Paint somebody's bedroom, uh, uh, meet a financial need, meet an emotional need, whatever it is, be available. If you know the heart of somebody, be available in that moment when God provides you a place to serve them. Watch their kids so they can go out on a date night. Um, one of the things I love most about this church, it's the natural ways this stuff happens in here. I call these informal blessings. It's amazing experiencing and observing how people care for each other. I think it is beautiful. And all that I'm saying is, is many of you are already doing this in your world. Really consider if you're not what it means to take how great and how awesome this ethic is 
and provide it in the spaces where it does not exist. Serve people. And the last thing I'll say this morning is to share your faith, to proclaim your faith. Contrary to popular belief, there's actually real data on this. Um, I think we have at times understood what it means to discuss faith, life, our philosophy of the way we exist in this world. Sometimes I think we believe there's a more hardened opposition to this than there actually is in the world. And so if you're faithful to pray, listen, eat, and you know, serve people, what's likely going to happen is you're going to begin seeing increased opportunities to talk about what Jesus has done in your life. Because at that point in the relationship, this is what friends do. They begin to talk about the things that matter to them, especially when there's pre-existing relationship. There's actual data that says people who don't even care a single thing about the kingdom of God or Jesus, they might believe he's an historical figure, but they don't at all believe the, the, the Christian ethic of how we understand Jesus. These same people say like, hey, if we were buddies, yeah, I might not agree with you, but I would love to hash that out and talk about it. I'll give you an example of this. A year ago, we have a campus outreach group with us here. A year prior, we had a different group of students, and I did a Q&A with them, and one of the students said, uh, a very, very intelligent young man, he said, you know, I talk to a lot of people, and I've got this really good friend, and we talk a lot about all kinds of things, like high-end conversations about atheism and life and philosophy and all this stuff, and he said, I keep running into this one problem, though. He said, when we discuss our worldviews, he said, this person says to me, this is my buddy now, you can say anything you want. You just cannot talk about your religion. I'm not going to have it at this table. And he said, what do you do about that? And I said, well, you find a better friend. Because honestly, that's a terrible friend. What if you, deep, you, you had three kids and you deeply love them? And you and I became very close. And I said, I want to hang out with you a lot. But don't ever bring your kids up with me. Because if you do that, I'm not going to hang out with you anymore. You would say, I need a better friend, right? I might not want kids. I might not agree with the way you raise your kids. But if you really care about somebody... You're going to take one for the team and listen to that. And I would actually say it's even more important that you, you care to a certain degree about that. And so I think if you're dealing with an imbalance like that, that's just not fair. If you were having a conversation with somebody about what matters most in your life, but you were not allowed to bring up what matters most in your life, you already have a, there's a debate problem here right now. The ability to have fruitful dialogue does not exist there anymore. And I just want to say that we don't want to be that person <clears throat> on the other end of the spectrum. People that care about each other talk about the things they care about. And a simple way to share your faith, this is not the only way, this is a starting point. Uh, there's lots of ways to grow from this, but a simple way to share your faith, because I think there is an equal amount of, of intellectual concern, questions, objections about the faith, and emotional questions, objections, and concerns about the faith. It's a very simple strategy. You can just talk to people about who you were before Jesus, the reasons you began to inquire about Jesus and why you followed him. There's a whole nugget of wisdom in that conversation. And then you can talk about what life looks like since that moment. And what you'll find is that if you truly have a person who cares about you and you care about them, you're likely going to have some great dialogue about that. That doesn't mean you have every answer to every question. In fact, I find um, I enjoy these types of conversations with people. And oftentimes, if they are humble enough, they'll they'll recognize there are massive questions that, that no discipline under heaven, no matter what they are, can fully address. In other words, we, we know a lot about a lot of stuff, but we don't know everything about everything. And that's the place where really fruitful dialogue has. So this is a responsibility we have as individuals to share faith, but we also have a responsibility collectively. And this is how I want to leave you this morning. I don't want you to hear what I'm saying, thinking like I'm going to leave this place and I've got to do all this on my own. I want you to hear this, this from this angle. This is going to be, a, this is our mid-series stopping point. My family and I leave for our vacation this week. And I want you, since we're at the peak of summer, I want you to consider what it would mean 
to pray about this over the next six weeks when everybody is really out doing stuff and having a great time, what would your life look like if you stopped thinking about what the rest of your summer looked like and what your summer could look like if you engaged some people that maybe in your, in your neighborhood or on your block or in your workplace or whatever? What would it mean for God to reveal the gospel to your neighbors in whatever way he sees fit through you to, to give you a clear pathway of how your feet are supposed to travel uh, over these next weeks and certainly months and years? What does it mean for the gospel of peace to be present in your life and displayed in your life? It's important, I think, that we do that. Take that card with you, and I promise this is the last thing I'll say. If you have sat in this room this morning hearing me talk about how to bless other people in the name of Jesus, but you're saying, I don't even know what this means in my own life. I got buku questions about religion, uh, faith, Christianity. Maybe you have somebody in your life who thinks this is like the equivalent of North, Norse mythology. Whatever it is, if you, if you have questions about what it means to be blessed like this, to really know Christ in this way, don't leave this room without bringing that up with somebody. Let us know on that card. Contact us, call us, whatever. We want to help you fully understand um, your, your faith. We want you to come and see, like Jesus says in John chapter 1. And so think about this. Begin with prayer. Listen, eat, serve, and share. Let this sort of be what you meditate on in these remaining moments we have this morning. And I really do pray that this would guide your steps as you walk out of this place. You have been fitted with the feet of the gospel if you're in uh, Jesus. The good news of the gospel on your feet. Don't just let that protect your own body. Let it be the kind of thing that actually blesses and encourages the people in your world. As you leave this place, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about his gospel? And what will you do about it? Pray with me.